Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlo Castain, the Chief Executive of Farmwell. My guest today is Vicky Hurd, an expert and author who's been at the heart of environment, food and farming policy discussions for over 30 years. Vicky is currently the Head of Sustainable Farming at Sustain, a regular advisor to the UK government and a veteran of parliamentary committees. Before that, she worked at War on Want and at Friends of the Earth. Well, Vicky's got a new book out. Rebugging the Planet is set to be the must-buy stocking filler for Christmas this year, and in her wonderfully engaging style, Vicky shows us that bugs are beautiful, inventive, charismatic, sociable and economically valuable. And at a time when there's so much focus on the contentious and at times rather disempowering movement for large-scale rewilding, rebugging the planet shows us that in the micro-worlds of insects, beetles, spiders and slugs, each and every one of us can play our part and help to restore nature. Vicky Hurd, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Finlowen, for that fantastic introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, richly deserved. And Vicky, why bugs? Why have you written the book now? Yes, well, there were sort of three things that were hitting me at a particular time a couple of years ago when I came up with the idea. One was the huge evidence that was growing based on trend surveys of the loss of farm diversity, of insect diversity and numbers across the globe. And there was also a feeling that more people in the UK are interested in bugs. There's a lot of interest in the bug surveys that you can do as a citizen, the citizen science, like, you know, Wasp Watch and uh, Bee Watch and all those kind of things. And I also love bugs. I always have been a big invertebrate lover. And I put three things together and I thought I could write some tips to help people who weren't getting the ideas that they can do. There was also rewilding. You know, it's it's become such a topic that I thought, well, if we can do rewilding, like rebirding, why not rebugging? That's where the name came from. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, I, I wonder if you could sort of help us out with this idea that, uh, you know, there is this big crash, uh, this insectageddon, if you like. Um, Because when you talk to people, you know, driving up and down the motorway, you'll get anecdotal evidence that there are many fewer uh, bugs being killed on windscreens. But then you speak to somebody else and they say, well, it's because cars are more aerodynamic. So so what is the evidence that we're seeing this big crash in uh, the numbers of arthropods and insects? There was a very particularly noteworthy study that was done in Germany. I think it was a 50-year study in the same field and spaces showing that the number of flying insects had really crashed over the last few decades. And that got a lot of attention and insectageddon kind of headlines. But then that started to get more journalists interested in all the other studies that are being done across the globe, often in um, more affluent areas. So there's a problem there. We do need more data. We need more understanding of what's happened in the global south, for instance. But also, we don't really know what we've got. You know, we don't we don't know all the bugs out there. So there's probably no about 10% of the actual the invertebrates that we know, um, whereas the rest we haven't actually discovered yet. That's remarkable, um, but isn't it? The, it is, it is. I mean, they are so numerous, so extraordinarily diverse as a, as a, a group of animals that it's quite incredible. But the data is really growing and the metadata, scientists have pulled it all together. And whilst they do say we do need more research and it's not across the board and there's lot, some insects are doing really well and some invertebrates are doing re- really well, especially the non-specialist bugs, they, they can be very flexible in what they eat, where they go, the climate and everything. They can do well. But it's the other very, very important bugs, the pollinators, the spiders and the other 
critical bugs are actually crashing in many, many places. And people have noticed, as you say, the loss of bugs and uh, butterflies and moths around them when they go into the countryside, for instance. I mean, you mentioned academics, and, and it would be strange if academics were ever telling you they didn't need more <laughs> research in a particular area. But, but, uh, but, it, but it seems, you know, that the trend mm. is clear, isn't yeah. it? There's, there's yeah. nowhere in the world that's bucking the trend, that's suddenly mm. seeing a growth in species everywhere. Yeah. We're seeing this decline, and it's Absolutely. being recorded anecdotally mm. by farmers, mm. by academics, and recognised mm. at, at UN level and government level as well. So it's, it's really timely. And I just wonder, because through your work, and you know, through your through your life and your career, you've encountered many groups of people, and I wonder who the particular intended audiences are for this book, for rebugging the planet, because it's not full of loads yeah. of pictures, even much yeah. as it's got wonderful little vignettes of information. Yes, I think it's for the people who've become probably a bit more aware. So young people, um, you know, uh, sort of older teens and onwards, all the way to you know much older people, but they've become aware of the of the beauty of insects through things like. BBC Spring Watch, but also aware of the headlines. And so it's, you know, I do talk about farming and your clothes and uh, consumption and all those kind of things. And there are tips in there and ideas about what farmers can do and what they should be doing, what other industries that have an impact. Um, but it is generally for the public, a public audience that's got interested and wants to know more, particularly wants to know what they can do. So there's loads of boxes of tips and ideas in all parts of your life. And that's what I wanted to, that's where it started from, really. Tips and ideas for the general public. One of the things I love about it is that you've got all these little information boxes mm. and stories throughout the book mm. that make the info really accessible. You know, I've given the book to my nine-year-old and I said to him, look, you don't have to read the whole thing, but just mm. dip into those boxes. One of my favourite facts is that there was a super colony of Argentinian ants that's mm. been found in southern Europe that people reckon stretches for 3,700 miles with 33 yeah. ant populations, millions of nests, billions of workers. I mean, that's just incredible. How do people even know that? Yes, well, the Argentinian ant is extraordinary. I mean, it's one of those generalists. It's, it's really flexible and uh, able to recolonise an area. And as such, it can actually displace the native ant species. So it's of concern to entomologists in different parts of the world in, in, in different countries where they see these ants which have come on through global trade. They piggyback on uh, on those things, on those journeys and invade a new area, potentially displace the local ants. And that can be a problem for those ants are particularly important for ecology. And as such, they've been studied. And it's absolutely extraordinary. Colonies, thousands and thousands of miles away, can recognise each other. It's like Manchester United fans across the globe. When they meet each other, they can be friendly. But if you're Arsenal fans, no way. <laughs> you know, you won't be able to talk, you'll fight. It's that kind of thing. They will fight other ant species, but not their own, however far away in time and space they are. Now, you clearly loved bugs mm. since you were very small. Do you have a favourite bug? And actually, is there a bug that you want to rehabilitate in some way more than any other, a bug that's perhaps serially misunderstood? Well, it's difficult to have a favourite, but I, I do tend to always want to see a, a cop chafer or maybug or dune bug, whatever. It's got many, many names across the globe. It's a beautiful large beetle with incredible antennae. Um, it's and not much for pests. They're kind of renowned but, for being a bit daft and just flying yes, into things. Bumbling, <laughs> yes, bumbling. bumbling beetles with 
not great eyesight, but uh, they're beautiful when you look at them close, as most invertebrates are. But in terms of rehabilitating, I would say spiders, because so many people are frightened of them, an automatic reaction to them. I think there is an, a visceral reaction people have. So I tend to not use a spider picture if I'm doing an article, because that means people, a lot of people won't even read the article. Um, whereas wasps, I mean, people just don't understand how important wasps are for pest control and for pollination. They're extraordinarily valuable And for species. waste management as well. Was, exactly. The amount of what, um, flies that are wasp and all caterpillars that you might see as a problem in your garden, the amount they'll clear up for you, you, you know, if you've got a wasp nest nearby, they'll be doing a fantastic pest control that you might not be aware of. It's interesting. And of course, you mentioned spiders there. And of course, we're brought up uh, from the crib, you know, sort of little Miss Muffet who sat on her tuffet right through to <laughs> Tolkien and Aragog, you know, spiders yes. are scary <laughs> things. And, and, you know, we've got this issue with my seven-year-old at the moment. He wasn't particularly scared of spiders. Something happened. I, I forget exactly what. But now he's kind of that, that slightly sort of screaming stage. There must be a kind of a human innate response to this that stems back to the... That, I mean, in the UK, there aren't really any dangerous spiders, but we must still have that inbuilt in our DNA in some way. Interestingly, a psychologist has told me the only things we, we've got within our DNA in terms of reacting like that is sound so it's loud noises and speed or something i can't remember it's nothing to do with the invertebrates so we don't necessarily have in our dna but it, it you're right it's hard to believe that it's not an innate natural fear that's built into all of us but i think one of my the reasons i wrote the book and why i'm promoting it is to get adults and carers to instill a, a more nuanced view of bugs in their children or the children they're caring for, because you can uh, very quickly instill the fear. Something can happen and uh, children very quickly then stop having their wonderful curiosity and love of bugs turns into something fearful. And so I want people to change their attitude to bugs. So there is a whole chapter called Rebugging Our Attitudes. And that, that is really, really important and an important start of the whole process. I wonder, you know, just sort of moving on, because you, you mentioned rewilding earlier and we're thinking here about rebugging which is the micro version i wonder what you think of rewilding more broadly and how it fits alongside agroecology and regenerative agriculture which of course are the things that we're particularly interested in you know in the farmgate podcast because it's always seemed to me that the rewilding movement wants to take land away and set it aside for nature while agroecology aims to actively regenerate nature within a farming environment while actively producing great food is that a fair assessment I think it is a fair assessment. I think we're in a state of flux at the moment and people are getting very excited and there's a lot of investment and obviously climate change is getting a lot of people interested in planting more trees uh, in order to store more carbon. So that's all. I think we're in a really big transition phase at the moment. But what's at risk here is a load of farms that could be doing things that are really good for nature, for the bugs, um, whilst also producing food. And it's absolutely critical that we become resilient in our food supply. Every country, this isn't a, a nationalistic thing, every country should have more resilience in its food supply and in its food system. So we waste less, we don't waste crops on feeding it to cars and things like that. But the critical thing is that we do actually take account of farming systems as part of the regeneration of nature and climate mitigation. And so agriculture 
technology is at the heart of that. So I'm really nervous that people forget about the farming side and just say, let's rewild. And as you say, set land aside for, for nature in areas where we could really be doing both. It's interesting, isn't it? The way that people, mm. when we talk about rewilding, there is a sort of a natural instinct mm. to be attracted towards the stories mm. of the larger animals, the more beautiful mm. animals like, uh, you know, wolves, or if we're talking about the oceans, then whales and, and that sort of thing. And yet it, it is these micro worlds that are so important to my own. You know, one of my personal obsessions is soil. And even when we're talking about rebugging, if I talk about rebugging, really in my mind, I'm thinking of the spiders and the caterpillars mm. and wasps and things like that, you mm. know, that you might see in a flower pot or a window box. But but actually, we're talking about those microbes and, and microscopic creatures absolutely. in the soil as well, mm. which are the bedrock of biodiversity. Well, absolutely. It's extraordinary the amount of invertebrates there are in the soil. I mean, you can get millions of springtails in a small hectare of, you know, springtails are, are really important um, small critters that actually look beautiful but most people have never heard of and they're extraordinary but you've got can, your worms. Can you describe them? What are springtails? They're, they're very, there's one called a globular springtail which is a, is a wonderful thing. It has I think, six legs and it looks a bit like an insect but it's a different order. They're very fat and round okay. and they do a huge amount of regurgitating plant matter to smaller pieces so that the microbes and fungi can break it down further to release the nutrients. As, and the snails and the slugs and the worms that go through um, soils, all, all these are very critically important. But, you know, that soil is an amazing refuge. And as you say, it's unbelievably full of invertebrates and, and an important refuge. So are the small ponds that farmers put in. So the hedgerows that farmers put in and can put in and the woodlands and individual trees. All these are critical refuges and, and corridors for invertebrates to mate in, to travel through, to recolonize. And they're, you know, that's an important part. And forget about that and just say, no, let's farm intensively on that land and take away the refuges because they use some of the land or they waste, you know, they seem to be inefficient, therefore sparing land for rewilding. You're going to be missing a whole load of important refuges that are on farmed land, good farmed land. And you mentioned snails there as well. And I, I'm just sort of, you know, again, thinking back to, you know, those micro worlds or those macro worlds, a lot of gardeners, you know, they see snails and their instinct is to is to immediately get them out of the garden if they possibly can. But actually a garden without snails would be a pretty dead place, wouldn't it? It's about restoring that balance because absolutely. presumably snails are filtering soil, even making new soil. They are. They're absolutely critical. And the thing that most snails like most is dead plant matter. So if you haven't got snails or slugs, you'll have a lot of dead plant matter in your, unless you clear it all away, in which case you'll clear away the habitats for, for them, but also for really beneficial bugs like um, ladybirds and beetles, which are really important in terms of regurgitating the plant matter into soil. But also some of them are really good pest control. A lot of beetles really love eating aphids, for instance. Yeah. So snails are critical and, and you can grow plants in your garden that in ways that protect the plants that you want to protect from snails or grow if you've got a particularly snail filled area which I have in my garden grow plants that snails don't like so that's rebugging the planet which is mm. uh, I mean, as I say it's a fantastic book and you know congratulations on it because it's it's marvelous and it's available and of course we're in the run-up to Christmas and and I think over the last four or five years I've been aware that there's been one big eco book 
that everybody has got for Christmas. And I'm really hoping that this is uh, that oh, this is you. that book this year. Um, but moving on to your other work, you've been heavily engaged with the UK's Department for Food, Environment and Rural Affairs throughout the years of discussion since the Brexit referendum. And for people on all sides of the European debate, the opportunity to redefine the relationship between agriculture and the natural world has been a shining light in what many would see as a pretty dark period. And so for all the positive talk, are British farmers and is the British countryside going to be genuinely better off, do you think, once these changes are embedded? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah, I thought I'd pick you an easy one. Yeah, in my heart, I think yes, and I really want it to happen. And that's why I came back to working on UK uh, domestic farm policy several years ago to help shape what the future farm support system would look like because we as you say we have this unique opportunity to get it right and show leadership in getting it right we are still on track to do that the the new schemes that defra are developing could really help all farmers get on on the um route to more sustainable farming to agroecological systems whatever however far they want to go and not all of them will go all the way but there's so many things that they could be doing and that should be supported by the government in doing that deliver public goods but will also be really good for them as climate shocks more unstable weather patterns more ecological collapse happens within you know within even within the uk in systems such as we get more droughts and floods all those things mean that farms need to be more resilient and more diverse and that should all be supported through you know diverse in terms of what crops they're growing or livestock they're they're producing but also diverse in terms of the habitat types in their farm all those things will help and of course you you know you mentioned the way that uk farms need to become more resilient because of the climate impacts that we're going to experience here but also because you know those climate impacts are going to ramp up around the world and so we're not going to be in a position simply to import food you know perhaps in 20 years time to the extent that we are now we're going to have to you know rebuild that that national independence yeah absolutely i i think that there's so many factors in that but you know water stress is definitely something that's going to happen and and people have analyzed the imports that we have of food now and a third of our imports are in areas that are going to get very quickly major water stress and should we be taking produce from around the world um, when they you know other countries should possibly be building their own food systems for um, their own communities and regional food needs but there's also the factor of um, how much we use food for um, useful things and uh, you know given that a third of the food we produce or we buy is wasted I think we need to really tackle food waste as a a major issue because that really undermines our ability to have food or nutritional security in the UK. Now, you mentioned waste there as uh, as something that we need to sort out if we're going to sort of re-establish a greater level of national independence in terms of uh, the food that we produce and eat ourselves. But trade is another thing that I know that you're very concerned about. You've written about and you've talked about on a a regular basis uh, in terms of the trade deals that the UK government is doing elsewhere around the world. Now, why isn't the government listening to people like you and I and even the EFRA committee and the NFU on the issue of a level playing field on standards? I think it's an ideology and a belief that we should be trading and have a really strong free trade agenda. And that's ignoring all the things that are actually 
important for us as, as human beings on this planet, that a free trade, a, a trade uh, system that is entirely there for global trading companies to do whatever they want to do. And that's what we've had for, for a long time in, in many senses with the global food system. And I think it's absolutely appalling that the huge coalition of people from members of the public to the National Farmers Union, all our members, as you say, all of us have been saying we want a level playing field, we want to protect our food standards. And in fact, DEFRA's own, sorry, DIT, Department of International Trade's own studies of public perceptions on trade increasingly show that they are really keen as a primary role of trade to protect our farmers and protect our food standards for health and environment and animal welfare. So everybody wants this. And yet the Department of International Trade and a small um, echelon of people that are you know, completely in power are ignoring all that and doing trade deals which could undermine our standards and couldn't undermine all the efforts farmers and DEFRA are making to do things differently, to really protect animal welfare and environment. It's baffling and frustrating, and we've still got to fight, to be honest. We've still got that fight. Do you think there's an element of, of fear and vulnerability um, that's sort of that, that's shown through this position that the government has? The government is so desperate to make Brexit a success, and it's so scared of failure that it doesn't want to constrain itself any more than it absolutely has to when it goes out to get um, a trade deal with with this small country there, this small country there, or you know, let alone the larger countries yeah. around. I think I think you're right. They want to be seen to be a global player and able to do what they promised that they would do when they did the referendum. But that's ignoring all the different things that are really facing us now as a society. It's like almost blinkers. It's like they're back in uh, sort of a few decades ago thinking about what matters. Economics has moved on. You know, the idea, the ideology of free trade is not where we need to be at. We need to think of economics in a completely different way. We are not on an infinite planet of resources and natural resources. The bugs are running out. Soil is running out. You know, that, that all makes economics need to be done differently. And that means free trade is not where we should be heading. We should have trading dependent on protecting both livelihoods, workers and the um, planet and the systems that we depend on. And you say it needs to be done differently. And you talk mm. about the, uh, the, you know, the conservatives ideology, which is driving mm. this. And yet I'm always struck by, you know, conservatives and conservative thinkers will often Often, you know, bring out Adam Smith. He is their great enlightened thinker in terms of free trade. But Adam Smith wasn't about uh, unregulated, untrammeled no, free trade. He was about mm. free trade and recognised that there needed to be regulations and frameworks in order for that trade to happen. Um, you know, if, unless you were you were literally in a marketplace where you could go and compare one storeholder's meat with another storeholder's meat, you needed some regulations and you needed Absolutely. to actively create that mm. level playing field. He so, made it very clear, didn't he? Yeah, in all his work that we need those regulations, those systems, those frameworks. And we need them more than ever right now because we're facing, you know, climate breakdown and uh, we've got obesity crisis globally as well. We've got, I don't know if you've seen the recent news about food prices, you know, they're going through the reef. We've got to be doing these things in, in ways that really protect society's society's needs um, now and in the future there's a future generations uh, issue in all this protecting the land for so we can continue to feed ourselves so yeah I think he, he was right about that and we don't have them and what's frustrating when we did campaign 
for um, protection within trade, protection for food standards and trade rules. The government gave us a, a little bit of a um, concession in a trade and agriculture commission, which came out with its um, findings many months ago, and the government has still not responded to those findings, and it still hasn't set up the new statutory trade and agriculture commission. And, you know, meanwhile, um, our trade department is going around making deals and doing negotiations behind closed doors, and it's totally unacceptable. We should at least have a response to that commission's demands on keeping trade standards. Uh, and, th and that was what the commission recommended, wasn't it? Yes. It said very clearly mm -hmm. that those standards Absolutely. needed to be there, that if yeah. we were going to deliver sustainability mm -hmm. to any extent in Britain, then we needed to make sure that food that was coming in wasn't undermining those standards um, as we went forward. And being a global leader in those standards, that's, you know, we can do that. We can talk about how and why we're doing this. It's important to, to ratchet up the standards, not a race to the bottom. Yeah, we keep talking about this leadership, this post-Brexit <laughs> leadership position, don't we? But then we yeah. we kind of, as, an, as a nation, we kind of run away from it as soon as mm. there's this opportunity to really show global leadership. I wonder in DEFRA, whether there's a sense that people in DEFRA, the Secretary of State, that they really, that actually they really get this stuff. And it's just that they are unable to deliver because they are a weak department in comparison with uh, the Department of Trade or Treasury or whoever else. Or is it that there is still this kind of shilly shallying around mm. the policy discussion within DEFRA itself at the top? I think you're right. No, I think your first characterization is, is correct. It feels like DEFRA is not getting what it needs in this process because higher up there's a desire such a strong desire to show that brexit works that we're a global player and we can you know we're powerful and it's a ridiculous position really you know you're only powerful as long as you can uh, maintain your uh, strong weapons and we won't be able to because we're a small country but we do have a strong farming system and the ability to produce diverse foods across the uk we should be investing in that and building that resilience, which I talked about, and protecting the natural systems like the bugs, rather than automatically assuming it's going to be better to import cheaper food, like from Australia, the, the beef feedlot systems in Australia. Yeah, there's some great beef producers in Australia, I'm sure, and I know there are, but the feedlot systems are incredibly harmful. Um, and we have great beef produced in the UK. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So why not champion and support those and doing what they need to do and champion that to consumers so consumers know what to buy to support pasture based systems which are really good for um, biodiversity um, and the methane emissions you know it's a complex area but they you know you're building in carbon stocks in a pasture based system in the soil and then the plant matter so it's great things which if we're completely undermining if we go and import load of beef from Australia. It's, it's always extraordinary. It's always seemed very strange to me, you know, as somebody who is so invested in, in land use mm. in general, I'm sure it does to you that DEFRA mm. is seen as one of these sort of lower departments. And especially in this COP year, when COP26 mm. is coming to Glasgow, when we have a climate emergency, we have a biodiversity crisis, we are an island nation, we need to be able to feed ourselves. And land use is such mm. a critical factor in being able to deliver on any of these various different issues, whether that's food, whether that's security for our population, because people have still got enough to eat and drink in the future, uh, whether it's addressing climate mitigation or adaptation or biodiversity restoration, it all comes back to land. And, mm -hmm. and it strikes me that, you know, I mean, farmers through CAP were receiving 
1.1 billion quid and and just just administering central government costs 11 billion quid which just gives us an indication of our, the way that the government and the way that society more broadly um, views the importance of agriculture mm. and that 3.1 billion if that was sustained comes down I think per citizen to just less than one pound per citizen per week to manage three quarters mm. of these islands so money's really important partly because farmers need support and partly because that support can be a strong lever for change and the government has always said that it's going to continue funding at the levels at least at the levels um, uh, that, that farmers were getting under cap but I've been looking at the terms for the new sustainable farming incentive which is this sort of bridging policy for English farms English being distinct from Welsh or Scottish because they've got different policies there um, before the substantive reforms come in in 2024 and soil improvement is a key outcome which is fantastic completely support that but the rates are so low and the basic farm payment under cap in 2018 I think I'm right in saying it was around £90 an acre give or take but here the soil payments are set for between £10 and £28 an acre I mean mm. what's going on there are farmers just being given a really bum deal I think it is a problem and it's not just the soil standards that I'm hearing that over and over again that the, the rates are too low there's an issue with the way in which the payment methodology has been done because they wanted to do it based on public goods, you know, assessing the value of the public good and giving the farmer the recognition of that value by paying them per hectare or per metre. And, and they haven't been able to do that. So they've gone back to sort of old, old systems that they've had for the agri-environment schemes and possibly cut them even further. I mean, I'm told that this is a pilot, that we're learning, that they're going to be changed. And I'm being told that a lot by DEFRA, that the payment rates will be evaluated through the pilot. But what you're talking about is the soil um, values for next year's rollout, which is the you know the start of it all really, available for all farmers in receipt of BPS. So if they're hearing this, they're going to say, well, that's that's not not enough. I'm going to go hell for leather, get more animals or a more intensive farming system, which is exactly what we shouldn't be doing. We should be having really productive but sustainable farming systems being driven by this new policy. So it is a huge worry. And I know DEFRA, you know, are beholden to the Treasury and what they can get out. So I'm, we're very clear that there needs to be an adequate budget for the scale of need and for advice and all the ancillary processes that need to happen to support farmers in this, not least supply chain and infrastructure. So there's so many things that money needs to pay for. As you say, there's nothing more important than being able to feed ourselves and land use. We should have a land use framework that really ensures that we're using the right thing in the right, the right piece of land for the right outcomes. And that's very difficult where we don't know who owns a lot of the land in the UK and we don't have control in England of, of uh, land use or a land use strategy as they do in Scotland, for instance. So there's a lot of issues within that that need to be resolved. Um, and I really hope they grasp the idea of having a land use strategy because without it, we could become a real mess with a lot of trees planted without the biodiversity benefits and uh, a loss of land for farming, for agricultural farming. I just want to take advantage of you being here because I think if anybody understands, you know, where the money is supposed to come from, then uh, mm. then then you're probably the person who can who can help us out with that. And there will be English farmers who are listening mm. to this podcast um, and, and hearing that figure around the mm. uh, sustainable farming incentive. Um, yeah. That's presumably that can't be the only 
money that's on offer to farmers? Then is there a sliding scale sort of going away from BPS that um, that farmers that were getting such and such will get a proportion of that? That there's other funds that they can dip into? How's it going to work, Vicky? There are several things in play at the moment. There's a consultation on the lump sum scheme. Farmers will be able to get their current payments in a lump sum as opposed to sort of annual basis if they want to. That's one of the schemes. Exit scheme as well to be uh, supported in leaving farming. And there are obviously a lot of um, schemes for technology and productivity advancements, things that they've outlined in the um, agricultural transition plan that they're going ahead with. A number of schemes also for animal health and welfare. That's going to be launched next year in a, in a small way and there'll be money for supporting animal health and welfare improvements on farm and for environmental improvements, capital grants, things like that. So there are going to be a, a suite of schemes, but it does worry me that a lot of farms don't even have business planning. Do they have adequate understanding of how all this can fit together for them as the BPS cuts are, are really cutting in from next year and onwards? So Elms in England, the Elms scheme isn't supposed to be replacing BPS. It's not. But inevitably, a lot of farmers will be seeing that as an income stream that they need. And so it'll have to work for them. But also, it's worth noting, um, Finlow, that there's going to be a a basic middle and advanced level to each scheme, or most of them. So you'll be able to transition from a small fee for what you do to a higher fee as you go further and you learn more. And I think many farms, as they learn more and they do more, will find it benefits them and their businesses as well as they get more money. So the critical thing is that the money is there for all farmers to do something. And I'm not convinced that we have a big enough budget going forward and Treasury doesn't seem to be uh, as alive to all those benefits and critical resilience features that we've got to build into our farm system. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, the Conservatives, mm. if I could think back 10 or 15 years ago, used to make a lot of hay with the idea of this sort of bonfire of red tape. Yes. And yet mm. they seem to be creating a system which is just excessively bureaucratic. You know, when you, mm. certainly when you're replacing something which is, and I, and I know that the old system, a lot of farmers complained that that was bureaucratic, but, it, you know, mm. it was, it was, you were largely getting one or two different mm kinds of payments, whereas there are so many different kinds of payments yes. here. And is, and is that a product partly of the fact that, that DEFRA is so big that there are so many sub-departments in there, each kind of presenting their own case individually, rather than having this sort of integrated approach to becoming more sustainable? Well, it's fascinating. I first started working on agri-environment schemes in the middle of the 90s, and there were eight schemes, and I did a brochure to show around the country what, what, what there was, and that seemed quite simple then. And now <laughs> we've got this presentation of eight pilot schemes, which is the first pilot, and each one has three levels. So you're right, it's going to be complex. But at the same time, farming is complex. Mm. I think if it was too simple, then it wouldn't reflect what, you know, the complexity of the different, every farm is different and needs to do things differently. So, But it I could think, be much more outcome-based, couldn't yes, it? Yes, it, 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 it could be as mm. simple as we're going to continue mm. with acreage payments, but mm. you're only going to get your payments if you deliver the outcomes and these are the outcomes. I mean, yes, that would be a simple yeah. way of doing it. Outcome-based issue, though, was problematic. A lot of farmers said, well, what if it rains and I can't deliver that? You know, what if there's skylarks not, aren't around that year? You know, there's lots of uncertainty in farming. So the outcome factor needed, you know, there, there was, I think you're right, it could have been an option to outcome factor plus, you know, plus some activities and assets management uh, recognition of that. But I think they could also have had a whole farm payment that recognise those farmers that are doing things on the whole farm, this, that and the other, which was optimal rather than maximal, optimal activities that really protected places for nature, 
built-in carbon on the whole farm system. That, that potentially could have been relatively simple and reporting could have been simple on a, a mapping basis. But we are where we are. And I want to be positive about Elms because I really want farmers to engage with the process. So actually it's improved through farmer engagement and all types of farmers. They're really missing horticulture, pigs, poultry, small farmers. You know, all of them are, are a bit of a gap at the moment. And so those farmers, we want them to engage. And particularly pigs and poultry. You know, there's big issues around those systems which need to be addressed through Elms or through regulation, which needs to underpin the whole way in which we support farming. I'm really interested in those terms that you use which are lovely, uh, optimal or maximal. And it strikes yeah. me that that's kind of, through those words you're describing land sparing or uh, land sharing, mm. that, that mm. land sparing, of which rewilding seems to me to be mm. part, it's about using this bit of land to deliver the maximum benefit mm. for this particular thing, rather than using land to deliver as much Lots. as possible, a whole range, multifunction of things, mm. um, yeah, to an optimum extent, mm. which yes. doesn't necessarily maximise any one or the other, but it delivers yeah. most things really very well. There might be need for maximal for a particular species that we really need to recover and we know that and you know the conservation bodies are very alive to that and where <laughs> it needs to happen but I agree for the majority of farmland we should be looking for the optimal outcomes for, for nature and climate and for livelihoods. You also talked about you indicated I think that um, that you felt that farmers ought to be getting a bit more than they're currently getting mm. so so if we work on the basis they're getting about three billion quid give or take mm. how much do you think how much more do you think that they need? Well it's hard for me to say. I mean, this because I haven't done you know really good data analysis. So I know a piece of work by the RSPB looked at scale of need, and it was around about three billion was needed just for the things that they knew that we absolutely needed. And it didn't cover many other aspects of food and farming, such as resilience in infrastructure and supply chains, and possibly didn't cover all the landscape things you'd want to do and um, farm-based systems and diversity that you'd, you, we want to build in into the farming rotations, cover crops, all those kind of things. So, it, you know, we could be looking at sort of 5 billion or, you know, 6 yeah. billion. To, and it so that's very much necessarily a... been forever. You know, we might be just talking about for a while for a transition until yeah. farmers are actually on the ladder of agroecology understanding and uh, getting all the benefits for their business as well as the... So this profit. 3 billion yeah. isn't the end point. It's the... It's the no. entry point it's the starting it, potentially, point yeah. potentially yeah. yeah absolutely but we've got to convince the treasury that we're getting value for money which is is pretty hard and yeah. things come very slowly in some farm systems as you know it, it's very difficult trees. with government <laughs> isn't it they, yeah. they the, the the accountants and the you know yeah. this this need for everything to fit inside an excel spreadsheet when actually absolutely. you just can't you need to take some things on trust in terms of land use and understand mm. that a broad trend is good enough you don't mm. necessarily need an academic paper which gives you you know the absolute specific details because that broad trend is, yes. you know, is better than than the opposite trend, which is yes. what we're getting so much of now. The, yeah, the, but we've the, got to be measuring it. That's the other uh, thing, of course, you know? of yeah, course, yeah. we need to be measuring it, and of course, we can build that data within Absolutely. within uh, you know that and, and adapt and and, and adjust mm. schemes as we go forward. But Absolutely. but if things are improving, that's mm. that's got to be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Absolutely, be good. Absolutely, and we should have rewards through the public and the marketplace as well. Ideally. Now you also mentioned exit schemes there, and I, I, I mean. Hope to goodness that we don't have you know huge numbers of farmers mm. choosing to take the exit schemes. But I do get the impression from behind the scenes in government that there are really quite a lot of people who would be quite comfortable if, as a result of the changes, we actually see quite a lot of farm businesses closing, farms being aggregated, land being turned over to forestry where they can sequester carbon through Sitka spruce, for example, or to rewilding mm. projects. 
Am I being too cynical? I've sensed this over the last four years that there are certainly, yeah, there is certainly a number of people in government and in the industry itself as well who see this as an opportunity to get rid of the, the laggards, the small, you know, farm inefficient farms, the farms that have business plan. And I wrote a blog at the beginning of, of this whole process saying, um, are we going to see the death of small farms? And, and the reason I wrote it was because that would be catastrophic. I think farms, you know, need the support and advice to get better, at, you know, some of them to get better at doing what they're doing and protect the environment. But to also assume the way to do that is to get them out you know, go bust and get amalgamated into ever larger farms or into, as you say, plantations, etc., is going to lose us so much of the fabric of the countryside, the features of the countryside. When farms amalgamate, you lose hedgerows, features that are critical, for instance, for the bogs, um, and you lose jobs and you lose that rural cohesion. I mean, there's very good studies showing this, that you need a matrix of small, medium and large farms. And this isn't about small farms are bad, small farms are good, large farms are bad. It's that matrix and a progression for farmers as well. If you're very interested in new entrants and government says it is, those new entrants need a progression to go through. So smaller farms and then go to bigger, more challenging as they learn the trade. And that progression won't be possible if we've just got a handful of large farms in many areas. And lots um, of small farms can be incredibly efficient. Exactly, exactly. Assuming they're not. Fantastic outcomes as it's well in terms yeah. of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that should be recorded and rewarded. So, yeah, I think I I find it very offensive when I hear people say that there's certain farms that are just so terrible they need to get out. It might be a small number that do, but an awful lot. They've just struggled against an incredibly harsh business environment, which has got worse and worse over the last two decades. Um, You know, the harsh pricing and contracts that they get. And it's very hard for them to to do things well. So we need to make sure things are done, you know, available for them to learn how to do the business planning and the environmental planning and land use planning that they need to do to get a a decent living. And there's a degree to which, you know, we get the food and farming that we pay for, that we deserve. Mm. And we are paying very, very little for food through the major retailers. We Mm. are paying very little to farmers to manage the countryside. So if we want a really good, thriving, vibrant Mm. economy and environment in our countryside Mm. then we need to pay for it yeah i mean farmers get on average nine percent of the gross value added of the agri-food system so they're getting less than you know ten percent of what we all pay when we go into the shops or the restaurants or the canteen or whatever that amount will not allow them to invest in new systems to do the rotations to learn how to do things differently to change the yields potentially to have some yield drop, you know, all those things that are big risk for farmers. They're getting so little from the marketplace, which is why Sustain is doing a lot of work about finding alternative routes to markets and looking at supply chains and infrastructure, which will allow that and seeing how farmers can collaborate and cooperate together to, to build a new market outlet and for everybody not just for the elites not just for the wealthy but for everybody and i think that will you know we can hope that retailers the big multiples get nicer i'm not convinced they will when they're competing with the amazon on the high street now i have near me an amazon high street store selling food you know so i think we need alternative routes and those uh, you know those are more interesting now with covid people are more interested in buying locally but it needs to be available for everybody, not just, you know, those who can afford a very expensive um, delivery every week. It's so uh, looking at that, how it can work in every town, every city and rural areas as well. And we need a campaign for farmers just to mm. just to receive more money. And if we're not going to pay more at the mm. checkout, then yeah, there needs to be more coming out of taxation, mm. more coming from mm. government. And somebody's raking the profits. You yes. know, it's shareholders and offshore tax havens, high executive salaries, all these things. And yet we know food workers are some of the lowest paid. Farmers yeah. struggle. You know, this is a, a, not 
a well-managed system at the moment and I think it needs intervention in the short term if not long term to make it work. I want to broaden the conversation out just for a moment Vicky if I may because there's been so much focus on farming and land use. It's easy to forget that the food systems are not just about what happens inside the farm gate itself. Mm. So thinking about the food system more broadly once food has left the farm where do you think the chief challenges lie? Yes we're just about to actually release a report in the next few weeks called Beyond the Farm Gate which is looking precisely at this because we surveyed 500 farmers and uh, asked them what they thought whether they liked their current market what the barriers were to changing it and that means infrastructure so it's things like milling drying sorting grading the produce that comes from the farm and for commodity farmers who produce you know and they just let it out the farm gate and don't have much say in what happens to it, it next and it could be sold anywhere those commodity farmers are you know the most vulnerable I think but they have very little control over what what happens to their produce or their meat and I think that's got to change we've got to value it better by having the processing nearer to the farm or within a region and developing regional infrastructure and supply chains that are really efficient but efficiency from a broad perspective not just purely in terms of the lowest cost denominator selling produce for the food um, service sector or for retail processing. So building in those systems which farmers have more control over and farmer-focused trading systems. That's that's key. That's the sort of phrase we're using, farmer-focused. So actually responsive to what farmers need. So they know they can do more rotations, for instance, or use a different breed of cattle because the buyer beyond the farm gate is responsive, will understand and can change, can talk to the customer about why this is different, why this looks different, why these carrots are maybe smaller or what, you know, all these kind of things that happen within a farm gate, which is very difficult. And, you know, clearly for people like us, of, of our, you know, I'm not giving any secrets away, that we're probably roughly the same age. We're, we're of the same generation. Um, and our relationship with food has, you know, to a large extent been set. But do you think enough is being done with new generations, with younger generations, mm. to change that relationship That's a really with food good and the land? Mm, really good question, because I think a lot of people say we need to teach children about nature in, in schools. And I, I agree. I think I think we should, but it's got to be done in the right way. And farm visits are all, you know, I know there's fantastic initiatives by Leaf and um, FaceTime a farm or whatever it's called now. Getting farmers into the schoolroom digitally is a brilliant idea um, because it makes it real. They can actually see things and understand things that happen. But it, happen, it needs to happen through what they see in the shops as well. So we need to have proper labelling and clear labelling and not... I mean, one thing we really need to do is to control market of foods and control mislabeling and false claims about what's healthy, what's good for you. There's a whole host of things that I could be talking here about mm-hmm. the marketing of junk foods and everything like that. You know, so it, it comes from many different areas within government that has to has to regulate to make that happen and to change education systems. Um, and I think that does come from also from parents understanding it better as well. And but, from things like mm-hmm. CBBS that still sort of present the idea that a farm is mm-hmm. you know this kind of yeah. you know mixed farmyard where all the animals are smiling and uh, you know it's it's, it's slightly more honest about the way that agriculture actually Mm. looks these days funnily enough jeremy clarkson has actually educated a lot more people about what farming is about how difficult it is how vulnerable it is and to the climate and changes in what happens and i i think that's that's all to the good the more people understand that and i've heard people say that um, farmers have said their children understand farming better having watched jeremy clarkson so that's all to the good but we need more of it um and you know through the channels that children are actually watching which often isn't tv you know uh, it's often online um forums and uh, you know there's different
different channels and we really need to understand that. As the oldies in the room, we need to understand different ways of communicating that. Now, just finally, and so that we don't end the programme feeling too despondent, because, you know, we talked about a lot of bad stuff as well as, we, you know, we touched on some of the good stuff. But there is so much good stuff. What are the things that make you feel hopeful and that make you feel that we might actually turn things around in time to save the species, to save the bugs and indeed save the planet? Yeah, I am. I am hopeful. And actually, a couple of years ago, I wrote a blog how wonderful it was to see in the main farming press how much more was covering regenerative agroecological farming practices, farmers doing things differently and making a living from it, you know, and actually learning. And so they, those organs for the industry, uh, you know, are indicators of how things have changed. And I, I've been to Groundswell and there's Innovate Farmers, awful lot of um, good stuff happening. Farmers are learning and farmer to farmer peer learning is one of the best ways of, of getting these changes. So I am hopeful. I'm hopeful the elms will actually be designed in a way with the financial underpinning that actually helps all farmers do something. So I, I am hopeful. And the public. One of the things I, I found about investigating um, invertebrates was the scientists were saying, what we really need is the public to support us. They actually said we want public support for what we want to do which is to do to actually understand what's happening on the ground because the moment so much money goes into ways to kill the bugs and to eliminate the threat whereas we need to live with and share the land and understand the beneficial bugs and the beneficial environment that farmers need you know can make a living in and maybe spending less on input inputs possibly having a different yield but still making a good living. So I am positive there's so much going on out there and farmers can access that information. And of course, you mentioned regenerative agriculture there. And mm. one of the key principles of Regen is mm. that connectivity and the allowing of complexity. Mm. And and that goes back, doesn't it? Not just when mm. we're talking about the sward and what's there, you know, in the grasses, mm. um, but when we're talking about farming and the food system more generally, mm. that there is a place for the small, the medium, the large, that we need that diversity and we need that greater connectivity between you know the food system and the customers that they're serving and, and hey let's let's keep fingers crossed for realms vicky that's absolutely that's been fascinating but that's all we have time for i'd like to thank my guest vicky hurd head of sustainable farming at sustain and author of the fantastic rebugging the planet vicky is on twitter and on instagram and rebugging the planet is available from all good bookshops and in fact probably lots of other bookshops as well so if you've enjoyed listening please come back and listen to more tell your friends like us review us and share our links farmgate is a partnership project for farmwell and fai farms we're funded by sankalpa and you can join the conversation on twitter by searching for farmgate podcast i've been finlow castain bye for now